Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital city, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Chaloner, your host, and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Yathu Kanagaratnam. Yathu is Business Development Manager at City Goddess Limited, a leading women's fashion wholesaler with significant online presence headquartered right here in London. Yathu, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us this afternoon. Thank you so much, Scott. I appreciate your time. I'm, I'm pretty excited. I've looked at your uh, website's contents and everything. This is amazing and uh, I'm really very much uh, pleased to join you as well. It's an absolute pleasure having you um, with us as well, Yafu. Now, um, the purpose of this uh, discussion is to really establish your take on leadership as a whole. So if we dive straight in and just look at that word leader in isolation just for a second, what does that word actually mean to you and how does it resonate? Um, so leadership um, is, for me, it's very much important because since uh, childhood, I've always had a great leaders guiding me and also giving me guidance. And I've always tell people, like, I'm, I'm very much uh, glad and happy that I've got great leaders. Let it be teachers, let it be my um, student club leaders, or let it be my college, um, where you have, like, teachers again or lecturers. And then when, it, when you join the career perspective, and I've had some great managers in place. I've had some great uh Directors, for example, even our directors, Mr. Tangra Jakovanesuran and Narmina Melikova. I've been with them for almost eight, nine years since I graduated and joined this company. So I have been having great leaders and leadership. So I've learned so much from them and those qualities and skills because I've seen them, what they do and how they have molded me and they, how they have done things. I'm also able to give it to the youngsters or who the, the new team members who's coming on board as how the other leaders have guided me. I'm also able to guide them and things like that. And that's one part of uh, focus area I look at. The other thing for me is to do with how the businesses have uh, performed well under different uh, leadership. So I've had privilege of working with different teams, different uh, uh, leaders, etc. But I've, I could see where I have a light, right leadership or uh, right leader in place, how the businesses have grown or how we would have tack, uh, tackled uh, the problems when it came, etc. So for me, a leader, a leader or leadership, it, it is a great thing and a must have. If you have a right leader in place, you will go and uh, uh, conquer kingdoms. <laughs> but if you have like a wrong leader in place, it's absolutely going to put you down and also it's going to drain the other business operations, etc. I think there are some really important points to take away from that, uh, Yathu, for sure. And it was the fact that you mentioned that some of the influential leaders um, out there, um, in your life especially, were teachers, mentors and uh, colleagues, maybe managers, people who've had um, an influence on teaching you. Now, leadership, it's important to remember that, of course, when it comes to developing the next generation of leaders, mentors can be some of the most influential people out there. And some of these mentors can actually be people who are closest to us, like some of the aforementioned people there, teachers and colleagues and family members and such. And I think these types of leaders sometimes don't get recognised as much as they should do, should they? Because we tend to associate leadership with maybe politics or celebrity or sports or something like that. 
I mean, th- th- that's totally, I, I totally agree with you. Like, you know, for example, where you have le- different leaders, even le- even let's say football team or cricket team or anything like that, or even uh, where I can add value to your uh, sentence, what you have said, a perfect example it will be a teacher, for example. They are going to create more leaders from the classroom than anybody else. But while they stay there, and they are not, they, they are like unrecognized in some areas and some departments, etc. So they have, they will be. If they are not going to guide, or if they are not going to um, preach the students correctly, they are, they are just going to be a, a normal students coming out. But there are so many teachers or like colleagues or mentors. You have said. They, they have, there are so many people, I totally agree with you, where they are not recognized, especially at these uh, hard times where we are living in. Let it be like nurses, for example. We didn't clap for nurses every Thursday in London or UK. We have been doing that. We, have, we are recognizing them how much, even, if, even though you have different level of, levels of within that um, hospitals or anything like that, nurses or doctors or even cleaners or anything like that. It, it all comes under... Uh, like where we don't recognize people. I totally agree with you. And you mentioned, of course, um, the need for leadership um, and the the here and now um, as well with the context of the COVID-19 pandemic and business leaders having to adapt to that, feel their way through this uncharted territory. For yourselves over at City Goddess, um, Yathu, how has it been for yourselves uh, navigating this current situation? Because I can imagine it's been a real challenge for you as well. Indeed. I mean, uh, when... Like this, this is the first time even my let it be my directors or our HR team or myself we heard about a, a something called furlough scheme, for example. Uh, but given that situation, that only happened I think late uh, March or April. But when this ha- when this situation happened, we were in a situation where we had so many cancellations. Uh, we had so many customers calling us, guys, please don't deliver anything. Uh, we have had to put a post with our supplies from India. China, um, rest of the world, and it's a, it's a supply chain was in a in a chaotic mess. And on the other hand, obviously this is something new, a pandemic which we didn't know even know about or anything like that. But a perfect example will be about the leadership is both of our directors. The the work they have given us is that in those hard times where we are getting orders cancelled and the suppliers are asking, calling us left, right, and centre. Etc. What we have done is we told the suppliers, guys, listen, you have been working with us for too long now. We are not going to let you down just because of our customers have cancelled the orders. We will be responsible for that. That's a great leadership there. Where they could have said, oh no, our customers have cancelled the orders with us, but we want to cancel it with, we want to cancel it with you. They did not do that. They said, these orders, please put on hold. Let all this virus and pandemic, let this get over with. And we will definitely take those orders orders from you guys. So don't be afraid. That's one thing I've I admired the leadership of my directors. And the second thing would be is to our staff. What they have told us is, okay, we have to uh, put a hold on um, to the working environment. You are all going to work from home. But rest assured, we will be paying you. We will make sure that you all have the work, etc., to do and things like that. And then only the furlough scheme came in. Obviously, the support from government, but uh, great leaders like my directors, for example, they have took the situation. They did not say, okay, I'm going to sack you or I'm going to not pay you or anything like that. They have given the assurance and that even put uh, a great thing towards the company that we are working for. We as a staff, we felt so much grateful for them. That's another leadership skills, I'll say. 
But um, the current coronavirus situation, obviously, we were hit very badly. Uh, we are we specialize in from party and evening dresses. But unfortunately, people were not going out. Everyone has to stay home and things. Our our was the worst hit thing. But what we have done is we have taken this opportunity to learn and see where are the problems, how we could uh, develop our business. It was a great opportunity for us to brainstorm and come up with new ideas. We have updated the platforms. We have come up with new strategies. We have made some new uh, connections through our con- uh, contacts and things like that. So we have used this um, pandemic uh, few months uh, as an opportunity to um, come up with new ideas and make the business when we come back that we are ready for to uh, make it a hit. That's what we have been doing. And it's fantastic to hear that um, the business has been focused on innovating because that is one positive that's come out of this challenging and difficult time, isn't it? The fact that businesses are having now to modernise and adapt and really be ready for what the new normal is going to be to keep expanding its offering. And there are some positives to come from that, as well as the experience that it will bring for today's leaders in business of crisis management too, and the way that it's going to develop their resilience and their character. Totally. Like, you know, when, when this pandemic uh, started or like, you know, when the lockdown started uh, within um, UK, so we didn't have a clue what is going to happen. Obviously, we have a business rate, we have a mortgage is going out. And obviously, as a business, we have to take care of the employees and uh, suppliers and all the cancelled orders and things like that. So, yes, as a business, we always face problems. Uh, we get here and there cancellations. We have uh, employees coming and going and things. But this was in total, we have had to face all the problem at once. And for us, to be honest with you, that this was a great learning experience as well. And we have ha- we have learned so much and we have prepared ourselves. What if anything happens? What if a second wave comes? Or what if another pandemic comes? Or what, it doesn't have to be a pandemic. Or what... Uh, a supplier letter is going to let us down or what our business uh, customers are going to let us down. Because when you looked at it, to be honest with you, a certain percentage of uh, customers were only giving us the total revenue. But what we have done is we have so we sat down, we looked into all the um, customer base and we have now segregated it. Okay, these are the customers which we are going to give more focus on. These we didn't um, target these customers, so we are going to target more on these customers going forward. So we, as as you said, like uh, how to manage the crisis, we have learned so much better than any any time. This this pandemic or this lockdown really helped us to be ready for any crisis uh, comes. Let it be a financial crisis. Let it be any other crisis which can come. We are ready for it. That's fantastic uh, to hear, uh, Yathu, that the business is really ready for what may come um, on the uh, horizon. And if we do think about what the future does hold now for yourself and for City Goddess, what do you envision for the next 12 to 18 months as we hopefully move through this current COVID situation and really begin to look to the long-term future? So as as I told you before, we have been strategically thinking what next for us as as a business. So uh, because we do also have a sister site called um, Godiva, which is a retail site, and also we have a um, B2B marketplace, which is called Trade Gala. 
So we cover the whole chain. We are we design, we manufacture, we retail, and also we uh, we have this platform for called Trade Gala, which is a B two B marketplace, as I said, where we also get some understanding and also feedback from other uh, um, sellers and buyers, etc. So our major plan is to how is to capture new uh, countries where we were very strong in UK and uh, Europe. Now, what we want to do is we, we have the technology in place to reach new markets, obviously, SEO and PPC. We are going to not only trade with UK and Europe, we are going to go to USA. That's our next uh, area of um, place where we are thinking to expand. That's like expansion is one of our main research, main things. That's for the next 12 to 18 months. And we are going to do uh, more trade shows, obviously, if the situation allows, not not within this year, but in another eight months or in 10 months time, we'll be doing more trade shows. We'll be going to different countries, understand what kind of um, business opportunities are there and things like that. And also we are going to employ more new people to support. And uh, uh, it's going to be, obviously, the sales are going to be slow for us, but we are going to put more people to put the effort and push it more hard to uh, attract new uh, countries and new customers because obviously it's going to be a limit after what what is going to happen within the EU. We don't know yet. So we are not going to sit and wait for the results or, okay, this has happened or anything like that. No, we are just aggressively going to expand it to new markets. We are investing so much into our marketplace to help and connect the sellers and uh, the buyers. We are investing heavily on that as well. So for us, aggressive uh, sale, and we are going to put more people behind to achieve that. That's that's our goal uh, for next 12 to 18 months, I would say. Sounds like um, some incredible um, ambition and really exciting times for City Goddess um, as well, Yathu, despite the um, the uncertainty of this current situation. And, you know, I think during the next year, given how informative it's been hearing, um, of course, your views and your plans today, it would be great to actually have you back on the programme just to catch up on uh, where you are in a few months' time and just see how some of those hopes are being borne out um, as well. I think that would be absolutely fantastic. That's, that's great, Scott. I mean, I wish you all the very best with whatever you're doing. And uh, we are we are going to tell more people about the podcasts and things like that. I've had some absolute uh, great time listening to some of them and etc. So, I mean, definitely with, with pleasure, we'll definitely can catch up in another eight months or two, uh, 10 months time and then see where we are and how much aggressive we are. <laughs> That would be a real pleasure, uh, just as it has been today, uh, Yathu. Uh, thank you again for taking the time to uh, join us on today's programme. And most importantly, until we do touch base again, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on as well, because we're not quite out of the woods uh, with this yet. That's great. Thank you so much, Scott. I appreciate it. That was Yathu Kanagaratnam speaking, Business Development Manager at City Goddess Limited. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, Sir Andrew, a former England cricket captain, is the current Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. During his days as skipper, he became one of only three England captains who've secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia, so joined a very illustrious club. And he also became the England skipper with the second highest number of test victories under his belt in history quite impressive i hope you enjoy listening just as much as jonathan enjoyed speaking with sir andrew strauss and that is coming up next hello and welcome i'm jonathan white and today we are joined by sir andrew strauss former captain of the england cricket team and former director of cricket at the ecb sir andrew thank you very much for joining us today real pleasure to be here thank you the pleasure is all of ours you know and you've had a distinguished career as i said both 
on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things 
being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international cricket. And in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and and, and you've got (laughs) other places to be, so (laughs) we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open-top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point now because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but uh, i did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, privileged I'm sure no doubt to serve as captain and whether you like it or not you become the focal point of criticism uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong especially when the going gets tough you become a leader in many senses of the word uh, during your time as captain what qualities does one require to fulfill that role ha. um well a fair amount of resilience for starters mm-hmm. you know you're absolutely right you, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like 
the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that, you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realisation this is going to be a tough thing to do um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place and they uh they'll feel comforted there'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough if they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself um it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be it doesn't matter you know how gregarious and and how um impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you Mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh you took some pretty 
uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was... Firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket quite a radical shift from what we, we, we what we were coming from yeah but mm. the rest of the game had moved on yeah. and the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially but also in in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But... Actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so f so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of, uh, especially school kids, who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I, mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of, Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well you never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had 
lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in december uh, 2018 uh, i came back and launched a foundation with two f focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so numbers yeah i mean it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other. Because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know... we. I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We're, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think if the, if the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be... Yeah, so the... Uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is... Uh, yeah. A very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day. What an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the 
the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing re- uh, wearing red. So what w- what an extraordinary thing! Yeah, well, a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely, you know, they they were right behind us, and um, you know, we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, because I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, Mm -hmm. potentially a a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, We need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I i I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gotta be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.